Welcome to Nest Church, and thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this word blesses you today. For more information, visit nestchurch.com. We hope to see you soon. And remember, you are loved. All right, once you're there, hopefully you could take out as well your, your notes and take out maybe a, a pen. We're going to hopefully take a lot of notes today because today's a different kind of preaching and teaching. It's nothing like it was last week. It's a little bit different this week. Um, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to read through the chapter, um, chapter 1 of Nahum, and we're going to go verse by verse, and we're just going to surf through the text of the book of Nahum. Now, I was sharing this in 930 Hodo, and I think it's so important, and I love that the song was sung. The book of Nahum is so important. It is, Nahum is a prophet, and specifically, he is a prophet who is speaking to the empire of Assyria, the Assyrian empire. But as he's bringing forth um, prophecy towards the Assyrian empire, it's also a prophecy for the southern kingdom of Israel, which we know it as Judah. During this time, Israel is split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. One, the southern is Judah, and the northern kingdom is Israel. Israel had already been conquered by the Assyrians, and now Judah is left alone as the southern kingdom. And Nahum comes up to the scene now, and Nahum brings forth as the mouthpiece of God the prophet of God, he brings forth a prophetic word to the people of God and to the enemy of God. And Nahum does this, and it's so special because I asked this to the group earlier, and I said, how do you know if a prophetic word is important? How would you answer that? Hopefully the first answer is because it comes to pass, right? <laughs> if not, it was a prophesy, not a prophesy, right? So... A prophecy in it being fulfilled is, yes, that was important. That's a very good answer. And number two, think about this for a moment. Nahum's prophecy, it is the only prophecy in the Bible that is made into a book. And we have the book of Nahum that is made up of three chapters. And because of that, I also believe that this is the reason why it's also very important. Today, my goal is to get through chapter one with you. And hopefully you could see that in the book of Nahum and through what is happening in chapter 1, you could see how relative it is to our day to day and how relative it is to our land and maybe how relative it is to your own personal walk with the Lord. And I hope that you could bring forth application with the text that we're going to study today. Amen? Praise God. The book of Nahum is so cool. Now, the name Nahum, you should write this down. Think about the prophetic word. In his prophecy, he's going to bring to one people group hope and encouragement. Listen to this. And in the same prophecy, in, it's only God's way of doing this. That through one word, one group of people could be blessed. And through the same message, another group of people are going to be judged. God has the ability to touch people with his word, with one word in all, in all different distinct ways. It's like a Sunday here. We've shared this before. We could preach a message and every single person receives something different and how it affects it. And it's just special how God, how the word of God is so alive in every single um, individual's life uniquely. But the, 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 here is Nahum and as he gets ready to prophesy, he's speaking to 
you could say two people groups, and I think it's still speaking and living today. His name alone means this. Here is a man who will prophesy, and what better name than his name? His name means comforter. Another way that you could say his name, Nahum, is not just translated into comforter in our English language, but it also can mean full of comfort. How how interesting is it that the man who is going to prophesy judgment to a whole entire empire also has the name full of comfort? I'm going to bring forth a word of destruction to the land, but know that I'm full of comfort. My name is full of comfort. And I think God has a special way of doing things. God is very strategic, and God has a purpose in all that he does. I believe that in the book of Nahum. Let's give you some background info before we ever could get into verse 1. This was a time of the Assyrians. And the kingdom of the Assyrians, we know that their capital was a very famous, popular, and powerful capital by the name of Nineveh. You've heard of Nineveh before. And that was the Assyrian capital. And they had been a thriving nation now for centuries. The Assyrians, uh, if you study them throughout scripture, throughout history, you'll also see that the Assyrians uh, can be a cruel people. Uh, They were known for their abuse, the Assyrians. They were known uh, for their torture on those that they would conquer. Constantly abusing, misusing, and torturing those that they are conquering. They had already, like I said earlier, conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And now they're threatening the southern kingdom. And they're an oppression to the southern kingdom. And they're a headache to the southern kingdom. I'm wondering if anyone in their lives has ever had a constant oppression that has been a headache in your life year after year after year. Maybe it's day after day, month after month. Maybe you're here today or you're watching and you're saying, when will I be rid of this? When will this be removed and taken away from me? When will this uh, uh, captivity be released? Will I be released from this captivity? How many of you can relate at some point in your life to going through something like this? I'm sure we all can. Judah is going through this during their time. When will will we be released from such oppression, from such a people that are cruel and evil, who don't worship the God that we worship? And and, and, and Assyrians were were this empire that, that it's interesting because God would use them over and over again. And God has a way of doing this. And he would use the very same enemies to be an instrument against Israel, against Judah, because they continued to fall into sin. And because they continued to fall into sin, God would use the Assyrians as an instrument against them. And and I know right then and there, I mean, we could really make a left turn and, and really talk about this. Because we know that many times God has used instruments in my life and in our lives that we know that at, during that time it made no sense that that instrument is being used in our lives. And the Assyrians would have been just that, an instrument of why God would you use this to do a work in me. But now this powerful empire is at a place where the Lord says, I'm done. A better way of saying it is, enough is enough. 
The Assyrian Empire is now, as we read through this chapter, at the brink is the best way of saying it. The brink of destruction, or better said, the brink of extinction. Destruction and extinction are two different things. And they're right there as the prophet Nahum is going to bring forth the word of God. It is Nahum's greatest recognition, this prophetic word. I could ask you right now, what do you know about Nahum? I wonder how many of you could stand up and tell me five things about Nahum. But there's one thing that Nahum, his life, his ministry, his prophetic ministry, the greatest recognition of it is this prophetic word, these three chapters. And it would be known as the doom. What a, what a phrase. The doom of the Assyrian Empire. How many of you would love to hear a prophetic word that is the doom of your constant captivity? The doom of your constant oppression. How many of you want to hear a prophetic word like that? <laughs> the doom of that which continues to oppress you. And who steps up to the scene? Comfort. Full of comfort to bring forth the doom of that which has a grip over your life. My God. And you may be asking, but why? Why so much destruction? Why so much judgment? Last week, pastor, you told us to look at God as a good father. <laughs> Purposely and consistently, you look at him as a good father. How many of you remember me telling you that? Why so much doom? Why does this good father allow such harm and such disaster and such destruction? How many people have already asked that question? It happened in 9-11. It happens with tsunamis. It happens with COVID. It happens with killings. Why would God allow? I never said cause, allow. Because God forbid if I said cause, but allow. But why would he allow these things to happen? It's different than cost. Because then we're taking away from God that he's all-knowing if he did not know about it. So he's allowed it to happen. Some of it is instruments that are being used for the land and for the people of that land. It's the instrument of what he may use. Though during the moment, it doesn't feel good. During the moment, we're not in agreement. During the moment, it doesn't feel like he's a good father. But if we stay in place and we continue to trust, we recognize that whatever instrument he does choose to use, it's going to bring forth his great purpose and glory for this land, for his kingdom. Why would he do that? I'm sure many of us have been asked that. Many of us have even asked it ourselves and the answer is simple the answer remains the same why because he's good i know it doesn't seem it doesn't make sense right why does he cause harm and destruction and disaster because he's good and what happens is we have a way to define good that is outside the biblical definition of what good is the greatest definition of good is god god is good good is god now what we've done is we've taken away good away from God and we've given good a whole other umbrella of many things that it can mean. But because God is good, all these things can fall under his umbrella. What are you talking about? This is what I'm talking about. He's good and because he's good, that means that he's fair. And because he's fair, another word is that means he's just. God is a good God. God is a fair God. God is a just God. So listen to what I'm about to tell you. So through his judgments, we see the justice of God to what? To serve humanity. 
Through his judgments, we see his fairness. Through his judgments, we see his justice. We are the men that say that's not right. But who are we to tell God what is right and what is wrong? (laughs) One man tried it. And when he was done questioning God, God said, are you done? Are you done? Now it's my turn for you to sit down, tie up your pants, and I have some questions to ask you. Who knows the stars and knows them by name? Who tells the water where to stop? Who tells the sun to rise and fall? Come on, Job, answer those questions. Man, and I'll begin to answer yours. God is a just God, a fair God, and in that he brings forth judgment to humanity and to the land. And all of that is to show his justice, his goodness, his goodness. God is good. Amen. The Assyrians were godless people. They worshipped false gods. They were godless. And grace had been handed to them for centuries. Grace and grace. All over the Old Testament you see grace. But now the Assyrians needed to give an account. That's a very powerful statement what I just said. And now Israel as well had to be dealt with. The northern kingdom as we know was already conquered. And they were taken. But, but specifically now, there's a southern kingdom, and they had to come to a place and to a position where they would repent and where their casualness of their being and of their doings was no more. God was almost telling Judah, I'm tired of your casual way. I'm tired of your sinful way. It's, you can't be casual in this land anymore. He's really going to put a spark in Judah. And I love the song that we sang in worship because it's exactly the it's a song that, that is for Judah. If I were to title this message anything, it, was, it would be a heritage in his comfort. We have an inheritance. And we have an inheritance in the comfort of God. We have an inheritance. The people of the Lord have a heritage. I hope you understand that. You know, when Paul writes things like, and, and when we read things in Scripture like, like, I am in this world, but, you know, but we're not of it and stuff like that, and I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and I'm an ambassador. Like, do you understand what you're saying? You're actually saying that you have a heritage, an inheritance to a whole other kingdom. I know sometimes we say it because it's the Christian quote to say, and it's the biblical knowledge to say it, but does our spirit truly live it? Is our mind set on it? And the people of God have a heritage, have an inheritance. And we're going to see that even though, listen, even though Judah sinned, even though Judah continued in their casualness, they still had an inheritance and God was going to push them to it. Come on, children, you have this inheritance and find it in my comfort. Enough was enough. And God was going to do his work. And, and in it all, I'm telling you today because I don't want you to ever confuse what I'm about to read to you. He remains as a good father. Amen? The book of Nahum can be split and described in three sections. But I want us to see it in this first section how it is described. And it says this. It is described as God's great power. It is described as God's great power. And number two, 
how that power works itself out in the form of protection for the righteous, but judgment for the wicked. God has great power, and in that power, he's going to work out He's going to work out the good for his righteous. He's going to work out protection for the righteous. But he's going to bring forth judgment for those who live in wickedness. Amen. And I believe the book of Nahum is extremely relative and it's needed for our day. That though there is wrongdoing and God's name is being disgraced in our land, in this land. I'm going to tell you right now that God is good and his great power will be the protection for the righteous. Even if his name is being disgraced today. If you have social media, if you turn on the news, if you listen to the people with influence speak, you'll see that the name of God is being disgraced and smeared all over this land. And yet he will deal with the sinful and with the wicked as he pours out his judgments. Who is this man now that is going to be bringing forth the word of God? Who is this man that is going to come into this land? It's around sometime around 612 B.C. And he's going to come and he's going to speak this word. It's none other than Nahum. It's reminding everyone that as he brings forth this prophetic word, he's reminding that all of this that I'm about to tell you, it's going to happen. But remember, I am comforter. He is saying that through Nahum. I am the one who is full of comfort. So I use Nahum to speak it. There's truths in this book as we get ready to jump into verse 1. Truths that need to be taken in. Truths that need to be applied. And I don't have time to go into all eight of them. But here are some truths I'm just going to spit. And you might not have enough time. You might have to go back and hear the podcast, watch the YouTube video. But I'm going to just spit them out. Here are eight truths that should be taken and applied in our lives as you read through this book. Number one, sin is serious, sin is serious and will be judged. Amen? Number two, we need to examine our behaviors and our attitude. Number three, God does not tolerate abuse. God does not tolerate misuse of others. Is that not relative in today's day? Number four, God offers mercy and comfort to the faithful. Number five, God wins every time. Even if justice seems delayed. Number six, leave the judgments to God. Number seven, be motivated to speak, or I'm going to say this way, be motivated to evangelize. And number eight, experience God's presence and power. Eight truths as you read the book of Nahum that should be applied in our lives. Let's get into this contextual flow here of chapter one, verse one. Amen? It says this in verse one. The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. Now, notice how he starts off. You know what? I'm just going to read 1 through 6 and then I'll go back. Verse 2. God is jealous and the Lord avenges, the Lord, and the Lord avenges, the Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And will not at all quit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. And dries up all the rivers. Bashan and the Carmel wither. And the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake. 
telling you, the song we sang was so needy, so, so important to this message. The mountains quake before him, his, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at the presence, yes, the world and all who dwell in it. So good. Heaves, it burns in his breath. Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation and who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. How many of you are encouraged? <laughs> it depends on what, side of that, on what side of that prophecy you sit on. You guys understand what I mean? If you sit on the side that that prophecy is for, you're like, yeah, destroy them all. But if you sit on the other side, like, oh, no, please have mercy and grace. Don't let that happen to me. It all depends on which part of the, uh, of the prophecy you sit on. It's like every word of God. The word of God is spoken, and it depends on where you sit on. To some of you, the same word could be an encouragement. When the person next to you, the same word could be a rebuke. It is just the, the ability that his word has. And as Nahum gives this word and begins in verse 1, what do we read? Well, first off, we see that all these verses, uh, immediately he's painting for us the fierceness and the great power of our God. I think we saw that, right? I mean, come on, hill, uh, mountains quake and hills melt. The fierceness and the power of our God. In verse 1, he starts off and he says what? It starts with the word called burden. He says, the burden against Nineveh. That's a very important word there because the burden could also be translated into the word oracle. The oracle and the burden, the, the prophetic against this land called Nineveh. And when you really break down that word burden, it is a word and a phrase that is used to describe the heaviness of this message. Here is Nahum, and he's going to give forth this word, but the message is heavy on him. It's a heavy message. Why is it a heavy message? Because to a big group of people, to a large group of people, this message is one of judgment. Do you know what I'm saying? I, I, love, I love when people come to me, the Lord gave me a word. Well, what's the word? The, he told me I'm going to have a big house and I'm going to have a lot of money. And I'm like, oh, that's the word that everyone receives. But I would love to hear someone say, God gave me a word. What's the word? Well, he rebuked me. He rebuked me because, and then, like, oh, that one I'll believe more. <laughs> that the Lord, the Lord also brings forth a word of correction and rebuke. But no, we always tend to say, no, if the Lord speaks, it's always got to be for my favor. But what we don't recognize that sometimes the rebuke, we need to recognize that it's also for your favor. It's also for a good work that God is doing in us. So here's verse 1, and he brings forth this burden. I have this burden towards Nineveh, and, and it's a prophecy, the prophecy of Nahum. I said it's the only one in the Old Testament that is identified as a book. And, and we see that it's heavy, and he's going to deliver it. And in verse 2, he goes on, he says, God is jealous, and he, the Lord, avenges. That word is a word that is introduced to Moses in the book of Exodus. God's name, his name is Yahweh. And he says, Yahweh is a jealous God. And Yahweh is the one who avenges. And he, he's, he's speaking this, and the hearer understands exactly what he's talking about. And you're listening to this prophetic word today, and you might know exactly what he is speaking about. He goes on, and he says, the Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. But the Lord is jealous 
he avenges. And we see that he is jealous and he avenges. What do we see? He is furious. He is furious. He is furious. And I believe this, and you should write this down in your notes so we can have a conversation about what you think. But this is what I think. I believe, according to Scripture, not just this, but all over the, the Bible, I believe our Lord avenges through his jealousy. I believe it's because of his jealousy that is the purpose and the reason why he avenges. I want to make sure you understand this word jealous. Because I am so bothered by a celebrity woman who comes out on TV and says why she walked away from the faith and why she walked away from Christ. This woman has a lot of power in our world today. She has her own network on TV. She has millions and millions of followers. She is seen as a pillar of planet Earth. She is this, she is just this woman. Okay? And this woman one day was in church. And she was sitting in church. And she heard the pastor say, our God is a jealous God. And this woman, who has so much power, who has so much influence today, said on that day is the day that I decided I will not serve that God and I will not be part of that faith and I will walk away from that Christ. She says she stood up from her chair, turned her back against the preacher, walked out the door and never entered into a church again, never followed Christ again. Can I tell you why? Because she didn't understand what jealous meant. She misunderstood it. She, she, she grabbed this and misinterpreted. She didn't read it in its proper context. She just heard something, took it as she wanted to take it, and she walked out mad. And she didn't recognize that the jealousy of God was more good for her than it was bad for her. And she missed out on it. And so today, she's turned her back on the true and living God. Many of you love her. I'm sure of it. Because many people love her. I, I feel for her, but my heart feels certain ways about her teachings and her ways. But she has decided to do that. And I want to make sure you understand the jealous nature of God. Because this celebrity and many celebrities, but she is one who is very vocal about it, has gone on TV and on books and have shared this experience about the jealous God. And I want you to understand that she misinterpreted, misunderstood him in his nature. And I want you all to write this down. It is not that God is jealous of you, but he's jealous for you. And those are two different statements that she missed out on. It's not that God is jealous about you or of you like she took it. It means, woman, he's jealous over you. He's jealous for you. Think about what that means for a moment. He's jealous for you and over you. I love how one commentary puts it. I'm going to read it as is. It says, we tend to associate jealousy with a self-serving emotion that usually results from feelings of inadequacy. God's jealousy, in contrast, proceeds from his holiness because he alone is holiness and he will tolerate no evil. So you read these verses and you read that statement and I say, he is a jealous God. And this goes back to the time when he tells Moses, what? You shall have no other gods, no other gods but me. No other God but me. I alone am your God. No other God. 
So any other gods or any other idols, any other beside him in our lives, what is he saying? I will not tolerate. How many of you have you put a God in your life before the one true God and God did not tolerate that you put that God in your life? How many of you could give testimony of that? A lot of hands. Why? Because he's a jealous God. The reason why he did not tolerate for false idols and false gods in your life is because he's, not, he's jealous, not of you, but for you. And he says, as long as I'm God, I will not tolerate false gods and idols in my children. That's what he's doing with this prophecy over Judah towards the Assyrians. He tells Moses, you shall not bow down to them. You shall not worship them. This is all found in Exodus 20, by the way, that I'm quoting. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Is that the first time you read the jealousy of God? He says it in Exodus as well. A jealous God. And even in this commandment in Exodus chapter 20, the first of the ten there, it is clear that his punishment comes from his jealousy. You know what he says at the end of the commandments? I didn't want to get into this. But he says this, And I will punish the children for their parents' sin from their second and third generations. What does he mean? Man, it's from my jealousy that I avenge. It's from that place I'm a jealous God over you. So I want us all to be encouraged as we get through this verse. Just like Judah, the Lord tells us that he's jealous over us. How many of you could say amen? Thank you, Lord, for being jealous. I'm jealous over my wife. Let me catch another man looking at her for a little bit too long. You can, I'm jealous over her. Yesterday we had a situation at Target. We did. There was a guy, and I felt he was standing next to her a little too long. And I just stayed back, and I said, I want to see if he's going to tell her something. So I just stayed back. And I said, let's see what he does. And next thing you know, I didn't notice, but there was a machine there. He wanted to see the price of something. You know, Target now. <laughs> she said, what are you doing? I said, he was standing next to you too long. I wasn't sure what he's doing. I just wanted to stand back for a second. I want him to know that the lion roars. And... But the reality was, it was no other reason, but, be, but by her was a jealous man. Not that I'm jealous, but I'm jealous for her. I'm jealous over her. She has no other man. She has no other God. She has no other idol. The one standing before you is him. And if you try to get in the middle of that, there's going to be problems. The way that a man feels like that about a wife is the way God feels like that about his wife. Christ feels like that about his bride. I'm a jealous. You understand? I wish she was sitting in our church today, this celebrity. So she could recognize what this means. I'm a jealous God. Be encouraged. No other would take his place. He alone is holy. He alone is set apart. I alone am holy towards her. I alone am set apart from her. No other but me for her. If she does that, if I do that, I walk away from the holiness. I walk away from that. But we are set apart one to another for each other. It's the, it's the message of the gospel. Christ and the church. He's jealous. Verse 2. Let's go because I'm never going to finish this message. We might have to continue this next week. It's okay if we do. You guys are cool with that? Yeah. All right, cool. Verse 2. We see that he's jealous. He demands what? What does that jealousy demand? Just like my jealousy demands. Undivided devotion. Nothing should divide our devotion. Undivided devotion. 
You devoted to me, me devoted to you. God demands that for his children because he's jealous over you. As this prophecy is aimed towards his people, its intention is to show them, and I believe to show us as well, as verse 3 says. He talks about the jealousy that he has over them and for them, but he also says, in my jealousy, I avenge. And as I avenge, look at verse 3. This is the heart of God, man. Verse 3 says what? The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. What do you get in that verse? This is what I get. That in his slow in his timetable, okay? Look at, that, look at that passage again. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Don't confuse the Lord's slow reaction. Don't confuse that for his lack of power. Just because the Lord is having grace and mercy, it does not mean that God is not powerful. He may just be gracing with a part of his nature, which is I'm slow to anger and be very happy that I am. It does not mean that he is away from, removed from his great power. He says, and will not all at all quit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storms and the clouds and the dust of his feet. But what an amazing truth this is. He is slow to anger. How many of you have experienced the God who is slow to anger? But yet as he's slow to anger... I've seen that in that he's shown great power. That my own, that my own, he says, my own would know, listen, that my slow in anger is me protecting them, redeeming them, vindicating them, and I have mercy and I have patience, which makes me slow to anger. It's part of who I am. And today we have a hope that in and through Jesus there is mercy, there is forgiveness, there is redemption. Man, the Assyrians during this time, they decided to continue ignoring the ability to repent before our true and the true God. Until the time of Nahum's prophecy, they continued living in wickedness. And God had shown them that he was slow to anger. Century after century after century, they were an ungodly nation. And it was time for mercy to end and for God to pour out his wrath and his judgment. And you may say, why am I sharing this? Why are you sharing this? Because I hope that all of you can see yourself in this text. I hope all of you can see yourself as God's people, like Judah is. I'm Judah in this passage. I am God's people. I am his covenant son. I am God's covenant son. And the Assyrians, what would they be in our lives? And what are they to Judah, God's covenant people? The Assyrians would be the oppressors. They would be the oppressors of wickedness that the Lord was going to destroy. When? How? Forever. Do you know that the Lord was going to destroy Assyria? Not to have them resurrect again, but to destroy their wickedness forever. That's why he says what? And I will bring a new heaven and a new earth and a new kingdom here on this earth. Why? Because he will destroy all wickedness here forever. And you can relate that there may be Assyrian types of oppression in your lives. A cruel and wicked fortified enemy that has waged war for a long time. A time that is way too long already in your life. To that which has been an unnecessary burden in your life. An ungodly burden in your life, maybe you could testify of. 
Here's what I wrote. That, may, that the Lord would be a burden to it. What a prayer that is. Lord, be a burden to my burdens. <laughs> be a burden to my burdens. So when the enemy is whispering, the burden of God falls on them. Verse 4, 5, and 6, let's read it. <clears throat> he says this. He rebukes the sea, makes it dry, dries up the rivers. Bashan Carmel wither, the flower of Lebanon wilts, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt. <clears throat> the earth heaves at his presence, the world, yes, all who dwell in it. Six, who can stand before the indignation? Who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire. The rocks are thrown down by him. Four, five, and six. What do we read there? It's too much, but I could define it all as this. I'm reading in verse four, five, and six. I'm reading on paper the power of God. That's what I'm reading, the power of God. In verse 5, look what he describes. We sang the song, guys. In verse 5, the mountains quake before him. In verse 5, the hills melt. Come on. In verse 5, the earth heaves at his presence. What does your translation say instead of heaves? You reading from a different translation today? Heaves at his presence. Scream it out. Quakes? Does anyone say burns? Burns at his presence trembles at his presence what what are those three uh things symbolism or emblems of hills and mountains and the earth what, what is that all those things pictures of as you read that these are symbols of strength and stability mountains and hills and the earth strength and stability but what does all this strength and stability that is seen here on earth, they all shudder and tremble and quiver in the presence of God. What a reminder. What a reminder for me, what a reminder for you that your oppression in your life, all of that stuff has the same ability that it falls under the presence of God and all oppression will what? Though it might feel for years, for months, whatever, however long you've been dealing with it for, it may feel like it's a great symbol of strength and stability and you can't break through, we sang today. You can't break through from it. God is reminding you of just this. All of that quakes and breaks before my presence. And Judah may have turned their backs. They may have had their moments of shame, their moments of even regret or even sin. But I want you all to know this about Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. They were still God's people. You may have had your shame. You may have had your sin, your regrets, and turning your back against God. But you're here today. You're watching today. And I want to remind you that you're still God's people. Somebody here needed to hear that. I just needed to hear that I was still his. And if you're still his, <clears throat> this is the same for you. You remain his. Man, stand, erect yourself before his presence, before the presence of God. And may all, may all that is against him collapse before his presence. How many of you could say amen? Hebrews 13 reminds us of this truth. I don't know, you know, that was the Old Testament God. Uh, I don't know then your theology because Hebrews 13 reminds us. And it says that even Jesus Christ, who was able to do great signs, wonders, and miracles, raise up the dead. Even Jesus Christ, Hebrews 13, 8 says, and I quote, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's people here under the Assyrian Empire were held in slavery by the strongest nation on earth 
into their captivity, Nahum comes in. And he begins to prophesy. Listen to this. Nahum is the mouthpiece of God. You should know that and write that. The prophets are mouthpieces of God. Today you could say, well, the preacher and the pastor and your very own self. We could all be mouthpieces of God. But during this time, it was the prophet who brought forth the word of God, the oracles of God before the people of God. He was the mouthpiece. And what was his name? Come on, say it with me. The name of the mouthpiece of God was Comforter. Was Full of comfort. I love that his mouthpiece is named that. That his, to open his mouth is to bring forth comfort and to offer full comfort. And in the middle of our captivity, the comforter, the one full of comfort, speaks into the captivity to do what? To free us from it. It would have taken tremendous faith to believe that this great nation, the Assyrian Empire, its fortified city could be defeated. How does that sound in your life? I don't know if God will ever be able to break through. I don't know if God will ever be able to do this miracle. I've been dealing with this for this long. All I could tell you as your brother, as your friend, as pastor, is to put your faith in him. He is the same. He is the same today. He is able to help you. He is able to deliver you. And the rest of this chapter is that, man. I'm doing something not just against the Assyrian Empire, but Judah. If you look at it correctly, I'm doing something towards you. It's a promise and a hope that you have in my comfort. You know what? I kind of want to read. You see, it starts off bad, but it ends off really good. One through six is really towards the Assyrian Empire, but there's a promise and a hope for Judah. Can we just read seven on? Verse seven, look how it starts. Notice the change of words here. What does verse seven start with? The Lord is good. And the person hearing the prophet says, I definitely needed to hear that. I just heard about the mountains quaking and the hills melting and the earth burning before the presence of God. I need to hear that the Lord is good. The Lord is good. It is that phrase, the Lord is good, you should write this down. The phrase, the Lord is good, it's the best news for the righteous to hear. Because when we say that the Lord is good, we're also saying in agreeing that we can endure the tribulations of life. Because he is good. And we could endure the tribulations of life solely on this one fact. That he, the Lord, remains good. What does he say in verse 7? The Lord is good and what else is he? He is a stronghold. When is he a stronghold? In the day of trouble. In the day of trouble, he is a stronghold. He knows those who trust in him. He knows the wicked from the righteous. He knows the goats from the sheep. That is why in Matthew it says that he draws a line from here to there. And he begins to draw a line. And he says, you on this side, you on this side. And at the end it says, he is doing something amazing. He is separating the sheep from the goat. He knows who are the ones that trust him. And he's a stronghold in the time of trouble. What is a stronghold? We all should know what a stronghold is. The stronghold is a place of refuge, of safety, of protection, of shelter. In verse 7, the Assyrians, you know, they had their own stronghold, their own fortified city. And it was called Nineveh. And Nineveh to them was an invincible fortress. No one can penetrate us because we have Nineveh on our side. Why was Nineveh so important to the Assyrian Empire? Nineveh had massive walls. 
And in those massive walls beyond them, they had a system of canals that they were able to use for their advantage. These moats, which were these deep and wide ditches that they were able to use. They had armed guards. They had all of this in this powerful city of Nineveh. It provided great defenses for the Assyrian Empire. Nineveh was crucial. If Nineveh goes down, the whole empire goes down. But as strong as Nineveh was, this is for you, this is a gem that you keep in your heart today. As strong as Nineveh was, the Lord is the real stronghold. Nineveh may have played an image of being a stronghold, but the Lord is the real stronghold. To who? To those who trust in Him. Come on, how many of you need to live in your inheritance in His comfort? It's a reminder that however strong our enemy may present itself, our God is even stronger. His word is even greater. He says, but with an overflowing flood, verse 8, he makes an utter end of its place. A darkness will pursue its enemies. Verse 9, what do you conspire against the Lord? Verse 8, we see that the Lord is going to bring an overflowing flood. Guess who he's talking to here? We're going to destroy Assyria. And all of God's people say, amen. Finally. How about if I tell you today, hey, what is your oppression? And you stand up and you say, and I say, Today, the Lord will send an overflowing flood against it. The overflowing flood was an agreement, a pact, a, a partnership between the Medes and the Babylonians who are going to eventually destroy Assyria. And they're going to flood the gates of Nineveh and destroy it. And verse 9, verse 9, so I can get to my main point to get ready to close. What do you conspire against the Lord? He makes an utter end of it. Affliction did not rise up a second time. Verse 9, what is he reminding Judah? And what is he reminding Assyria? You will not defeat my people a second time. It ends today. What do you conspire against the Lord? I'm going to ask you some questions real quick. Who is wise enough? Who is experienced enough? Who is strong enough to fight the power of God? The answer is no one. At their very best, the enemies of God become what one, what one commentary calls comic figures. It becomes a comedy show to God. His enemies become his laughter. I love that God looks at my enemies and laughs at it and it becomes comedy to him. What may be a dread to me on earth, in the kingdom perspective, it's comic. <laughs> Let that hit you. A comic. Their, their best plans will be merely a tangle of thorns, he says. Their finest moves will be only sloppy wall walks of drunkards. A, dr a sloppy drunkard can't beat you, no matter how bad you are at fighting. A sloppy drunkard comes, you got him. If you're going to pick a fight with anyone, it's the sloppy drunkard. Because by you missing him, he's going to fall. And the greatest strategy of the enemies of God are like a drunkard with sloppy walk. They're nothing before the Lord. Amen. Verse 10 and 11 goes on. He says, for a while, tangled like thorns. That's what I was just saying. Drunken like drunkards. They shall be devoured like stubble fully dried. From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord. A wicked counselor. And that's probably the past kings of Assyria. 
And he's going on, he's giving forth this judgment. And notice the wordage, the imagery in these verses. Assyrians would not be able to defend itself against their attackers. The enemy will not be able to defend itself against you because of the presence of God in your life. The word of God. I wrote this down and I want to share with you. I believe that when the Lord speaks and works in any of our situations, whatever it was meant to do, whatever it was meant to do, to do outside of God's will it will no longer be able to defend itself because God has spoken and because he has moved in favor on our behalf what am I trying to tell you what I mean is that because I am his I have a heritage I have an inheritance and we have this as the righteous it reminds me of Isaiah 54 17 when it says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. And this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Wow. It's an inheritance that you have. That every weapon formed against you shall not prosper. It's a heritage that you have. That every tongue that rises against you will be risen up in judgment. This is our portion, this scripture. This is what we've inherited, our heritage. Isaiah chapter 17, I'm going to read from the message translation. Verses 12, 13, and 14 says this. Oh my, thunder, a thundering herd of people. Thunder like the crashing of ocean waves. Nations roaring, roaring like the roar of a massive waterfall. Roaring like a deafening um, Niagara. But God will silence them with, him, with a word. And then he'll blow them away like dead leaves off a tree. Like down from a thistle. Verse 14. At bedtime terror fills the air. By morning it's gone. Not a sign of it anywhere. This is what happens to those who would ruin us. This is the fate of those of those out to get us. We have an inheritance. How many of us can say amen? amen? Verse 12, 13, and 14. And I'm going to ask the worship team to maybe just sing that song, Breakthrough, over us again here as we close off. But look at verse 12, 13, and 14 as I read it to you. He says, the Lord says, though they are safe, and likewise many, yet in this manner they will be cut down. When he passes through, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. For now I will break off his yoke from you. And I will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given a command concerning you. This is beautiful. Your name shall be perpu... perpu what did I say? What does your translation say? Okay, perpetuated. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut, listen to the jealousy of God. I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave for you are vile. So beautiful. Verses 12, 13, and 14, the Assyrians are at a place now. As we close off and we come up, I'm going to end with Romans for a moment. They could no longer rely on numbers. They could no longer rely on past victories. They failed to recognize the God of Israel who had previously used them as his instrument to afflict his people. Now he's going to break them. Dominion. He's going to break their power, their dominion. He's going to remove what he calls the yoke of slavery. 
from Judah. You know, I don't have time to get into this, but Ezekiel actually prophesies of this day. If you're taking notes, write this down. Ezekiel 33, verse 22 and 23, prophesies of verses 12 through 14. He actually goes on to name them. He says, Assyria is there and all her company with her graves all around her. And he talks about the graves. He talks about being slain and falling by the sword. He talks about they were a terror to the land, but no more. And I end with this verse and then with Romans. Here's verse 15. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. How many of you can say amen? Oh, Judah, keep your appointed feasts. Perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. You look at this passage and you say, well, what are the mountains? The mountains are the surroundings of Jerusalem. The message is one of deliverance here. Deliverance from the oppression of this enemy, Assyria. And it allows the people of Judah to continue to resume with their feast, to fulfill the calling that God had for them without the threat of wickedness and the wicked one. As we read through the first chapter of Nahum, I want you to see that in the midst of this prophecy of judgment of God's enemy, we see that our Lord Jesus Christ is beautifully portrayed. Yes, Nahum prophesied against Assyria. Yes, he prophesied against cutting off Nineveh. But as I end, I say this, his prophecy was ultimately fulfilled in the victory over Satan, the enemy of God, through the death resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 15 is actually quoted in the New Testament in Romans 10, verses 13 through 15. When he goes on to say, all oh, the feet of those who bring good news proclaims peace but I end with this passage and it's Romans chapter 16 verse 19 and 20 if you could stand with me and I want you to really hear this message and hear this closing word here and look what Paul writes chapter 16 of Romans verse 19 he says for your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. Verse 20. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly what a beautiful promise this is chapter 1 through 15 was to alert the people of Judah I see you in your land and I'm calling you just to trust in me and 
Paul at the end here in Romans says, your obedience has become known. I'm glad on your behalf. I want you to be wise in what is good, simple concerning what is evil. And know this, that the God of peace is going to crush the enemy under your feet shortly. Why would verse 19 and 20 be a, a hope and a promise to me? I'll tell you why. Because I have an inheritance, an inheritance, a heritage in the comfort and in the truth of being the Son of God. Verses 1 through 15 of Nahum chapter 1. It had a lot to do with 612 BC, but I believe it has a lot to do with 2020, 2020 AD. And I hope that you can apply it to your life. If you need to go back and hear this message, go back and take notes. But I want you to know that today you have an inheritance, a, a heritage in the comfort of God. He speaks over your oppression. And the one that speaks over your oppression, he is known as being full of comfort. He is known as being the comforter of your soul. How many of you could say amen? Come on, let's sing this song one last time. And today, if this word was for you, right there where you're at, I want you to lift up your hearts, lift up your voices, and say, Lord, you know my oppression. And I pray that you would be the comfort and the deliverer over my oppression. That you would be the miracle over my life. That you would crush the enemy under my feet. That you will see that I trust in you. And that I will walk in the heritage that my Father has given me. Come on, let's worship Him. And let's give Him more hearts today.